if you try to argue with somebody who doesn't want to do research, doesn't want to give time or budget to research, if you take their arguments at face value and you try to convince them about time or about money or that your data is better, you won't convince them. You have to understand them first. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. As a product designer, I've been following the content of Erica Hall for years now. She wrote a book, Just Enough Research, and she wrote also a book called Conversational Design. Now, after I've seen her on different stages, even in Israel, in an event called UX Salon, she was talking here a few years ago, I was really curious to understand the gap between creating just enough research and creating conversational design. So Erica was the perfect fit for this podcast. And I was fortunate enough to actually have her here because sometimes you look on someone on stages and you feel like you could never have the chance to chat with them in person. And then we have this amazing episode that she actually shared with me so many useful resources. So enjoy this episode. Don't forget to follow our weekly newsletter at uxwritinghub.com and enjoy. The first question I want to ask is about your background and how did you start the Mule Design Studio? Okay, well, started Mule back in 2001, but my background I studied philosophy in college, and then when I graduated, I you know, wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. I was always interested in technology, and you know, I went to a school that was fairly technologically advanced in terms of how the internet, and it was really just a part of life and how we worked, and then I graduated. And that's when the web was just really becoming a thing. And I was really interested in that. And then I found that studying philosophy had a lot of practical applications because it's really about abstract categories. And it's about systems thinking. And it's about... Asking questions. Yeah, asking questions, definitely. That's what it is more than anything. And I went to work for a technology publisher and then sort of a startup spun out of that. And then after that, I got into my first digital agency job. I found that I really, really enjoyed consulting and I worked for a couple of agencies and then decided, you know, it was time I met Mike Montero and we decided like, oh, let's start our own agency. And that's how Mule came to be. That's cool. Most of your efforts today are within doing research for clients or delivering the final product? Well, these days, so we were, yeah, we started in 2001. And for a long time, we were like a full service digital strategic design agency. And then in the past couple of years, we've shifted focus because you know, the industry's really changed. When we started, no one had an in-house team, really. Nobody had, people would have maybe some production design, but it was very rare for people to really have a you know, strategic design in-house or have that sort of design research in-house. Now, people have well, all sorts of organizations have been growing internal design teams. Just a, a really integral business function, right? You, you have to 
have those capabilities really to have a business these days because whatever you're doing, you have to deliver what you do digitally in mm-hmm. some capacity, virtually like every business of any size. And so because we've been doing what we do for so long, we've shifted into more consulting and training and speaking. So a lot of what I do these days is helping organizations, I'd say, improve their decision-making. So there is a huge challenge today. If you work in-house or if you work as an agency, that you need to prove to the stakeholders that you need to do research. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of time you need to invest in research and all of that. So how can you sell research, any kind of research, UX design or content mm-hmm. research? for your or for your client's organization? That's a very good question. I get that question a lot. Mm -hmm. And the place to start, because I think when designers or research specialists are very enthusiastic about asking questions and finding answers, and they think, oh, the best way to convince somebody is to just bring the best data. But that doesn't work because the reason why a lot of people in positions of authority or people who are decision makers, the reason they don't want to do research isn't actually because of the budget. It isn't actually because of the time. It's because of that fear of finding out that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And so if you try to argue with somebody who doesn't want to do research, doesn't want to give time or budget to research, if you take their arguments at face value and you try to convince them about time or about money or that your data is better, you won't convince them. You have to understand them first, right? You have to take the research process and turn it onto those people to Mm -hmm. understand them, right? Because they're just humans. They're humans the same way that, you know, the users or the customers or the people we're trying to design for out in the world, they're people and they're the same people who are, you know, working in an organization making decisions and really worried about how others are going to perceive them. And it can feel very threatening to open yourself up to be proven wrong. And so if you're trying to make the case for research, first you have to understand how to make the people in charge or the people who are more skeptical about research or the people who, you know, just want to run bad surveys. You have to understand what their real concerns are and what their real goals are and what makes them feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And once you understand them, then you can frame everything in terms of supporting a shared goal or a shared vision, not trying to prove them wrong. Because the worst way to win somebody over to your side is to try to prove them wrong. Like that's how you make enemies. If you come in and say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to show I'm smarter than you. You'll never win over anybody by coming in with that attitude of, I'm going to show that I'm so much smarter. Right. But I'm thinking about, I'm just, the, what I have in my mind is the Israeli startup ecosystem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where everything needs to be, needs to happen yesterday. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're talking with your, I'm talking about a, a small startup company right now, not a big company with a huge research team. They tell you, we need to design by, this design by tomorrow, by, by the next week. And you say, wait, hold on, hold on. We need to do some kind of a research because we don't want to end up going nowhere, right? We want to make right. this 
work for real people. So we need to invest in research. And then they're like, no, we don't have time for that. Time is the main objective that I encountered from my experience. And they say that you don't have time for that. I would ask, like, let's say that we have right now a stakeholder that is, is willing to experience with the idea of research. So what should be like the first thing uh, like which time frame should we take just to test it out if we're talking about like something that we want to prove our stakeholders that we actually write about that thing? Hmm. Yeah, see, even as a researcher, you have to let go of the idea of being proven right. There's a really, there's a quote from a Wall Street Journal piece from a few years ago that I use again and again. And it was an article about big data and how much you miss if you just focus on quantitative data. And the quote is, all business is placing a bet on human behavior. So the way to think about it is to think, okay, how big of a bet are we placing, right? Are, is it just, are we making a small change? Are we introducing a whole new product? Are we going to spend millions of dollars and many thousands of hours of engineer's time or designer's time to create this thing? And then the question is, how confident are we that we're right? Because if you're rushing to just do something and you're totally wrong and you've placed this large bet and then you have to spend all this time and money to walk back from that, that's time. But that's the time people never think about because it feels so comfortable to always be building, 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 building. And a lot of times when you know, managers or engineers talk about time, what they really mean is they're uncomfortable with not having anything visible they're producing. And research is invisible a lot of the time. It's you're asking questions and you're learning things and you're not necessarily like you're not building anything. And you can learn something really, really quickly as long as you're very clear on what you need to know and what your goals are. And I think you can, you know, I do these research workshops that are a day, a couple days, and I get people to really just get together in small groups and clarify their goals and think about their research questions and what their real priorities are in just a few minutes. You know, you can sit down with your team in an hour and really figure out what you need to know. And then you can learn a little bit to become more confident really quickly as long as you are very clear on your goals. But those conversations can be very scary because you have to face what you know, what you actually know, and what your assumptions are. And it really, everything about time and about money <coughs> is just an excuse that kind of covers up that fear of looking like you're not doing work and looking like you don't have the answer. I really love this answer. It's like you're getting into the deeper level of why people are actually frightened by research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting. Like I never thought about it like that. So most of our audience are might be copywriters that want to mm-hmm. work as UX writers or conversational designers, maybe with voice interface. Most mm-hmm. of them uh, would write today different kinds of copy for interfaces. And I want to talk about the gap. So you wrote the book, Just Enough Research. You wrote the book, mm-hmm. Conversational Design. And I want to speak about if there are any research techniques that writers can do today in order to improve the content or the way that they're communicating their digital products. Mm-hmm. 
like specific research methodologies or something that is a little bit different with the research created by a writer than mm-hmm. the research created by uh, the actual research team or the designers mm-hmm. or different people in the team? Yeah, I think there, a lot of it is very similar. And I, when I was working on conversational design, the book, I talked with a friend of mine who's a screenwriter. I said, what do you do? How do you develop dialogue that sounds very human? And the process he described was very similar to a design research process, right? It's talking to people, it's listening to people. And I think it's the same thing. So you have to understand how the people in your audience think. You have to understand the language they use, but you can't sound just like them. You also have to understand what role the product that you're designing, that you're writing for, what role does that fit in somebody's life? Because that will tell you what it should sound like. Because when people, you know, back in the time period that people called Web 2.0, that's when I think there was this resurgence of people really thinking about the language as part of the interface. All the websites started to sound alike. They all sounded like too friendly, too jokey, too casual. They thought that being conversational was the same thing as like being your pal, being your friend. But when you think about all the conversations that you have with people, like if you think about going back to the time, like before there was the internet, before there were websites, when if you wanted to interact with your bank, you talked to a banker. If you wanted to interact with a store, you talked to a human who worked in the store. If you were talking to your lawyer, you know, you, if you needed legal advice, you would talk to a lawyer. And each one of those people you'd have a conversation with. but your lawyer or your banker or your doctor wouldn't sound like your pal. That would be very upsetting if they were like, hey, bro, what's up? And you say, oh, you're my banker. Why are you talking to me like that? It's the exact same thing with a conversational interfaces. They should sound like the human that they're representing, right? (laughs) Every application, every website plays a role. So is it trying to sell you something? Is it giving you advice? Is it helping you manage your finances? And you think, well, what do the people that are trusted sound like when they're talking to you? And that's, I think, the research that the writer should do is really talk to, like have conversations with the humans that the interfaces are standing in for. So you definitely learn about the audience, talk to the audience, find out what information they need at what time. And then you also see how people and humans in these different roles interact. And then you kind of translate that into something appropriate for an interface. Because you can't just, I've talked with some organizations that I've worked with and done some consulting work with where what they do is they take their customer service calls and they transcribe them directly into an agent. Okay, we're just going to train our system on these customer service calls. So it talks exactly like that. But you have to think about the fact that you're designing for a different medium. You don't want the interface to sound exactly like a human and interact exactly like a human because that wouldn't feel right. So you have to take those qualities, that sensibility, so it feels right for the medium, you know, whether it's a web interface or whether it's 
a chat bot or whether it's voice, it should have the same feeling, but you need to make adjustments so that it's appropriate to the medium because most people, I think when they're designing for voice interfaces or chat bots or something like that, don't realize how much faster it can be to just click things on a website and making sure that it feels fast is really, really, really important. And I think this is something that is getting forgotten when people are getting excited about voice interfaces. It's like websites are really, really fast. And sometimes it can be so slow and so much work to chat with a bot or talk with a voice system. And, and I think designers and writers for those systems kind of forget to make it fast. Yeah, they're like adding they're trying frictions. To make it yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's, and then it's less usable, but and nobody want to create products that are not usable, right? Exactly. Okay, so it's very simple to say, okay, so if I'm working for a company like uh, Lemonade that tried to revolutionize the insurance industry, uh-huh. and they have also their own bot, so they will replace the, let's say, insurance uh, agent, right? Uh-huh. It, with the vibe of their voice and tone, but yeah. this is an easy call, but we have many different websites, many different clients. So is there any kind of methodology to define the voice of our brand or the voice of our product or to say, wait, so how should we sound like? How, mm-hmm. the, how the clients should perceive this right now? Yeah, that's a good question because it's very difficult, I think, to create a unique brand voice because it all everything starts sounding the same. Right. And so the I think sometimes especially people working in branding get too focused on the adjectives. Right. Uh, they're like, oh, we want to sound approachable and innovative or, or whatever. And the best way to differentiate yourself is in the subject matter. What are you talking about? And if you talk about your area of expertise, like in Lemonade's case, insurance, and you are focused on that topic in a way that makes it very easy for your customers or your users to understand what you're talking about and interact with you, that's what will make you different, right? That's what makes Lemonade different is Lemonade focuses on okay, you want to ensure your possessions in your apartment. And we're just, we're going to be friendly, but we're going to have that focus. And I think that will do it for the most part. If you just keep that focus and you're fairly friendly and you don't have to worry about sounding like so much different because you're not, right? Because you'll need to keep everything really brief and really active. And there's not a lot of, room, especially if you're designing things that have to work on mobile interfaces, as well as in voice, you don't have very many words. And so if you use those words to maintain a focus on what you're providing, you know, whatever your value proposition is, that's where you start is like, what's your role in somebody's life and keep that focus. Got it. And don't worry too much about, are we having exactly the right tone? Because you don't have that much room to like develop a whole tone. It's like you'll just have certain aspects that you'll 
kind of turn up or turn down. And that's a really great point because there is a lot of discussions right now going on around like voice and tone and mm-hmm. a lot of people are having their focus about creating content style guide. Content style guide is really important, but mm-hmm. also focusing on the voice and tone in the content style guide. We need to be like that, but not like that. Do that, but not yeah. that. And it's, uh, it can be very exhausting sometimes, you know? Yeah, I think the place to start if you're thinking about <coughs> how to create a brand or how to create a voice is what value are you bringing to somebody? And the more you're focused on providing real value to humans and sounding human, the easier it will be to create a good voice. If you really think about, oh, what's meaningful for people? How can I focus on what's really meaningful for people? And then everything follows from that. Because if you aren't really clear, and I've seen like clients I've worked with do where they're not very, very clear on the value that they're providing, but they try to do all this brand work to give the appearance, you know, that they're doing something, but they're not really doing something useful or valuable, then it gets just very empty and very fluffy. And that's where they lose focus. So you just have to start with what am I providing to you, the user, the customer, that's really meaningful and really valuable. And then go out from there to say, okay, how do I want you to feel interactions? And this is why I recommend people just sit in a room and talk through these things. Because too often, designers or writers are still passing documents back and forth and marking up documents, you know, the same way like they're writing a book. And you can't do that. You should sit in a room and say the words aloud. Like you have to sit there and read your interface aloud and then change it. And you can practice it. You know, you can practice it in Slack. You can practice it, you know, in Zoom and just run through it with people. And you can tell by just speaking aloud, like, oh, those words are getting the point across. Those words are focusing on what we're doing. Those words sound right for the role that our application or system plays in somebody's life. Or, wow, that's really wrong. Because I'm sure you've seen this, you know, and this is something people take screenshots and share on Twitter when they go to a website or use an app and the phrase is just totally wrong. <laughs> and you see that, you're like, how did that happen? Like, how did somebody let those words get into an interface? And it's probably because nobody ever read it aloud. Right. They just kept, you know, like the marketing team got in there and, you know, the chief marketing officer got in there and changed the words around to sound more branded or something, or mm-hmm. the legal team got a hold of it and it stopped sounding human or it just seems strange. Because it's really out of context sometimes. Like yeah. you know, people can write a very specific part of the user journey, but wait, it's not in the right context. It looks yeah. off. It looks exactly. Uh, I had a question that I want to ask. It's a problem that I had. Mm-hmm. You know, I did. I worked with different clients. I had my when I had less experience in design, and I did my transition from graphic design to UX design. So I did my research for this company, and I spoke with customer support. We had many insights, by the way. I did Mm -hmm. also user interviews, talking with people from all over the company. It was a huge, huge, huge company. It was really hard for me and time-consuming to gather the data and the data points and create actually like actionable items, like action items. And my question here is, what would be your take to take those data points and create an interface that is a bit more conversational 
based on the research that you just did? Mm -hmm. I think what you describe is a fairly common situation. People mm -hmm. will talk to users or do some research and then say, what do we do with what we found? And unfortunately, the place to fix that is before you even start. You have to be like very clear on your goals, very clear on your business goals, and very clear on what you need to know, what your questions are. If you do that, then you can come out of it and, and also the decisions that you're going to make. So you say, okay, we have these goals, we're going to make these decisions, and this is the information we need to help make those decisions. If you do that in advance when you plan the research, then you come out of it and you say, okay, we know what decisions we need to make. How can what we learned help us make those decisions? But if you don't know that in advance and you just look at, well, we have some insights, what do we do with them? Then you're going to have like a very foggy time <laughs> and you have to stop and say, okay, what decisions do we need to make? But you need to start before you plan the research. You need right. to know what your most important questions are. And that's a step that a lot of organizations don't do. Like I talk to a lot of companies, especially if they're growing really fast and they're product companies, they might have their customer support people or their salespeople are talking to users and customers all the time, mm -hmm. but they don't know what they need to know. Right, they're not asking the right questions. Yeah, so they just react. And this can be dangerous, especially if you have a new product because you listen to the people talking to customer support and the people who talk to support the most or the people who complain the most might not be the people who are really your target audience. They might not be answering your question. And so you get really reactive and you can end up putting all your resources towards helping the people that aren't your highest priority. So first you have to start and like know yourself and say, okay, this is what business we're in. This is what we have to do to be successful. This is what we need to know. And then that will tell you who to talk to. And it might be totally different people from the people contacting support. The people contacting support might not be your target customers. And of course you want to help everybody, but Any organization or any business has priorities. They're the people that you need to have as your users or your customers that will help your business survive. And you need to learn about those people, but you need to start from yourself. You can't just react. And that's what gets people in that situation. And then what happens is the company looks at that and says, well, we don't know what to do. So the research didn't help us. So let's not do research because it just makes us more confused. And that's a situation I see all the time where they'll try. They'll say, okay, we'll try doing this research thing. And then they don't know what to do because they didn't start with their big objective or question in mind. They just said, well, we'll talk to some people and see what happens. And the job of the researcher will be to understand what are those bigger yeah. goals when they work for that organization or with that organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To define yeah, it for have, them. Yeah. Exactly. You start with that conversation. You say, okay, what are our objectives <coughs> as an organization? And even, I'd say the best place to start is to all get in a room together, like with your team, your design team, whoever is involved in these decisions and say, what do we actually know? about 
our business? What do we actually know? What are we just guessing? And just to have that conversation, which will probably take an hour. I bet you could figure that out in an hour. It's mm-hmm. a scary conversation because if you're really honest, a lot of times organizations find out that they were making a lot of assumptions and that they were guessing and everybody was just pretending they knew things. And then when they really sit down and say, well, how do we know that? Then what you hear is, oh, we hope that's true. Like I have honestly gone into work with clients who have all of these like product roadmaps or marketing plans for the next year. And I say, okay, what's this based on? And I poke a little bit. I'm like, okay, what's this really based on? And it comes down to, we hope it's true, or we guess it's true, or I'd like that product, and they haven't really checked. And then that's a lot of times what I help them with is to say, okay, let's find out if your assumptions are actually correct. And let's really clarify your goals. And that's like a lot of my work because everybody has so much data now, right? Everything, you can measure everything. And so I see these companies that have so much data and they can't make decisions because they don't know which data matters. They don't know what research matters. They can't tell, like, is this important? Is this unimportant? Because they haven't figured out their own priorities. They will never know what data is important or helpful or representative unless you've figured out what you need to do and what you need to know before looking at the data or before doing qualitative research. And if you don't know how to do that, you should hire someone that actually know how to do it. (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's not even knowing how to do it. I think sometimes I've really seen this, just having somebody come in from the outside. Like when I work with clients, I'm not necessarily smarter than anybody else inside the organization. I'm just from the outside. And that means I'm not afraid of getting fired. So I can ask whatever questions I want to ask. I can say whatever. I can be really honest with people. Mm-hmm. And I can see things that they just don't see because they're too close to the problem. And a lot of times that's my greatest value is just coming into an organization and asking questions people are afraid to ask or haven't thought to ask and seeing things that maybe they didn't see just because they're too close to the problem. And that way I can help people really quickly. And sometimes it, like, it doesn't matter how, like a lot of organizations have really, really smart, talented people working inside, but they're just too close. Like they're just in it and they can't see. And I think that's why working with people, like even if you have a good internal team, bringing somebody in from the outside, if you know what you're trying to accomplish can be really helpful and and they can help pretty quickly. How does your process look like? How do you approach that kind of a task? Will you, okay, let's say that I'm a client right now and I want you to help me with my research because I'm lost and I want a budget Uh for it. Would you learn beforehand about the client and then come to some kind of a kickoff meeting and ask the right questions or it's more of an ongoing long process, Mm -hmm. strategic consulting kind of process or it's like a sprint process that one week insights and then you leave them alone? Like what will your process would look like? There's a couple ways and it depends on how big the problem is. If things are mostly functional in the organization and they have pretty good communication, but they're just not 
having the insights that connect to their product strategy, then I've found that like, it's like six weeks is a good time. And at first come in, interview people in the company just to see like, how are they working together? What's going on? Where are the gaps? Talk to them about where the gaps are and then go through a process of helping them prioritize their goals, like having those conversations, facilitating those conversations and talking, helping them understand like what they don't know. And then from that, we can pretty quickly identify, oh, these are some good research questions. And a lot of times I'll just go through like a model research project with them where I show them how to do things a little bit differently and kind of coach them through it. And maybe I'll do some of the research. Maybe I'll lead the research. Maybe I'll just help them while they do it and then come out of it with some process improvements. And a lot of the time, it's just little things. It's not like they have to do everything differently. It's just that they have to think a little bit differently about research and maybe have like a little bit more defined process and maybe just understand how the insights connect to decision-making. And a lot of times that's not how organizations think about research. They think, oh, research, we make reports. That's the output of research. Instead of the output of research should be better decisions. Like, because you're not doing the research to publish it in a journal. It's not like academic research. If you start making better decisions faster, if you work more collaboratively together, that's something that just happens over time. And so the idea is to put the different thinking in place. So the focus shifts from, oh, we're going to go off, we're going to do a research study, we're going to create a report. Like what I try to help organizations do is just learn continuously. Like if you're going to be developing your product continuously, you should also be learning continuously. It doesn't even necessarily mean going out and doing research. It just means being really good at asking questions. And maybe you can find the answer somewhere in a day if you make Mm -hmm. the question right. But a lot of times, because these organizations don't think about the questions, they don't know how to do research quickly, right? They just think of it as like, oh, we have to do the same set of activities. It's all activity focused. But if you're really clear on your question, a lot of times you can start to learn really, really fast. So that's really cool. Like you're not only like you can do the research, but you help organizations to be better research people themselves, even if Mm -hmm. it's not their role per se. You make them ask the right questions so Mm -hmm. they could do it by themselves, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And sometimes if the question they have requires, like sometimes they really need to understand a whole industry or they need to understand a very complicated set of user groups out in the world. And that will take more time. That's what they need is, oh, we really need to understand this whole new area that we don't understand. Like that'll take more time. Mm -hmm. But to just shift the thinking so that they can do a better job of choosing research activities and knowing which data to pay attention to, that can happen pretty quickly. Like I said, as long as it's already an organization that's working pretty well together and doesn't need like huge work on their collaboration or their internal politics or something like that. They really want to learn, then they can learn because we all do this. Like this is what I try to emphasize is all of us in life, if we have to make major decisions about 
you know, choosing a job or buying a house or buying a car or moving to a new city or anything like this that people just do in life all the time, you know how to do research. Like, you know, oh, these are the things I need to know about. Even planning a vacation, when you think about what process do you go through planning a vacation, right? You think, oh, what's my time? How much time do I have? What's my budget? You talk to your friends about where they went on vacation, reviews. My mom is a research expert on that field. <laughs> Booking vacation. You wouldn't yeah, be- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's the same process. But people freak out when they're in a business setting in front of their coworkers, in front of their <laughs> colleagues. But it's the same process when you think, oh, what's our budget? What's our timeline? What do we need to know? How will we know if we had a good vacation, right? You've got your criteria and you know how to do research to help. You know that if you're planning a vacation, you cannot guarantee like things can go wrong. You cannot, even with all your research, guarantee you will have a perfect vacation. But you can make choices where you're confident, where you're like, I'm pretty confident. Like, I know we're going to stay in this hotel. We're going to visit this area. This is a good time of year to go. Oh, it won't be as crowded this time. It's exactly the same when you're designing products. Exact same process. Like you look at what people are doing. You look at the patterns. You look at historical trends, like which people buy which products or don't buy which products for which reason. It's the same intellectual process as planning a vacation. Nobody thinks like that because everybody freaks out about asking questions. That's pretty amazing. So <laughs> ask the right question. Everybody is a researcher. If you speak with someone that is using an app that is similar to the app that you want to create, so they probably have a lot of answers, a lot of frustrations that when you're going to learn about them, it's going to help you to design better product for yourself. By the way, would you recommend to use a product like a user Zoom or userstesting.com and stuff like that? It's very easy. It's very tempting to use some of those platforms because it mm-hmm. seems like you can like, do a lot really fast, but you have to set everything up so precisely Whereas if you just do research the old-fashioned way, it'd be very fast, but you have to talk to people. You know, I really think everybody should do their own recruiting because you need, if you don't know how to recruit users, then you don't know how to get customers. So you should develop that in your own organization. You should develop that capability of recruiting people, and then you'll get faster at it. And you should talk to people directly. I think there's... So many, like there are a lot of really, really great tools now, but always start not from, oh, let's just use this tool because we think we can automate it, right? Everybody's looking for the thing that means they don't have to talk to people directly or make <laughs> so it yeah. so easy to avoid people these days. People don't right? uh, pick up the phone anymore, just texting. They just want to yeah. avoid human contact. But if you're designing for people, you need to talk to people. You need to understand people. And if you just do a little practice with it, you can figure out how to recruit people and talk to people and have moderated usability tests very, very quickly. But the platforms make it seem so hygienic. Like you just set it up and it runs and you get a lot of people. But are they the right people looking at 
what you want to show them. No, the people that get paid just to fill up answers and stuff like that. Exactly. They're totally random people. And if you look at how they recruit, they just say, oh, do you want to earn money, right? Do you want some extra money? Oh, you can be a user tester. So they don't even match. They're not even actually representative of real product users. And so, yeah, I think it can be really easy to feel like, oh, that's what everybody's using. It's cheap, it's fast, it's easy, but you won't actually answer your questions. You'll just get some misleading data that you can use in a presentation and avoid people and keep doing your thing. You know. Right. Even better, like to go to the local cafe and just like socialize in real life, meet with people and ask them questions. Exactly. Anything. It's also really so much nicer to socialize and to actually talk with yeah. people. You have to interact with people. If you want to design things that are interactive, want people to use, you have to interact with people to design interactive systems. And I know a lot of people have gone into like digital work and working on the internet because they're people who like avoid people. (laughs) And so now, but now, you know, we just have to talk to people and there's things like, you know, there's Zoom. You have no excuse not to talk to people because all the tools for connecting with people, you've got Slack, you've got Zoom, you've got Google, Twitter, all the social media, like there are ways to interact with people. So you don't have an excuse not to find people to talk to. There are just a lot of things you can do, but you have to want to know to understand people. You have to want that in your heart (laughs) in order to design for them or to write for them. That's the place to start. That's a really great answer because when I used to be a graphic designer, it was really important for me to always constantly ask for feedback. And I was trying to get some kind of approval, asking my friends, is this okay? Is this okay? What should I do differently? And I feel like it helped me to become eventually, years after, a better UX designer, asking for feedback and to know if, I'm, if people actually like that kind of stuff or I'm just doing it for myself. Yeah. And sometimes it's fine to create something for yourself. Mm-hmm. There's still a place for that, but... You need to be really clear. Am I creating something for myself or am I creating something for people out in the world? And then you have to understand those people. Right. So we are about to finish and I have one uh, last question. So there is a huge discussion right now going on about how should we test the copy of our interface? This is one of the biggest questions. It's not something that you can answer quickly, but... (laughs) Let's say that we have content and we want to measure that content of our interface is effective mm-hmm. or even our chatbots or our voice uh, interfaces. And who knows what's going to be in the future for conversation design. But what would be the best way to measure copy? Yeah, I mean, this is something. And I heard when you had that conversation with Jared Spool and he said, All of these things, we know how to do them. We've been doing them for decades. And it's the same. Like I've done a lot of testing with copy. And it's really clear to know, again, you have to start with what is your goal, right? And what do you want people to be able to do? How do you want them to feel? And then you have that clarity. And then you just have somebody interact with the system. If you're trying to test something like a chat or a voice, what you can do is do the Wizard of Oz testing where you have somebody pretend the same thing and you just watch the person interact with it and you ask them like, what do you expect to happen? And you have them 
like speak their thoughts aloud, like the cognitive testing, the same way that we've always done. And the nice thing about testing copy is it's so easy to prototype, right? You can switch things out so quickly. You can write new copy and then for the next test, run somebody through it and say, do you understand what you need to do? What do you need to do next? What are your reactions to this? Yeah, and the same usability testing process. And when we used to do a lot more direct interface and interaction design, we were always, like, we always considered the copy part of the design. It's often the most important part of the design. Yeah, so you just do the same kind of usability testing that you would in any other way, but, you Mm -hmm. know, you can do it, I think, very quickly. You don't have to have things built out. You know, you can do paper prototypes. You can have somebody, like I said, pretend to be the system and, like, type things at the user on the screen. Keeping up with the same old, good old uh, methodologies, And what is your take about like the future of conversational design and AI and voice interface? And, you know, I don't know, it might be a little bit scary or it might be a little bit... What's your take on that? Like what are UX writers are going to do in five years from now? Which kind of interface are they going to write? Well, I think we're still going to have all the interfaces because I think what's going to happen more and more is we're going to have to think across modes and devices and figure out how to make it seamless because this is the expectation people are going to have. Like it shouldn't matter to somebody if they use the website, if they are using a messaging app on their phone, if they're calling in to use voice like on the phone or use it or they're driving or mm-hmm. sitting in a driverless car or whatever happens in the future. Yeah. What I think the challenge is going to be is how to allow somebody to switch modes when they switch contexts. Because I think right now the problem is it's too separate. Right now I'm talking to some, you know, clients come to me and they're like, oh, we're, we want to start doing conversational design. Like what should we do to develop a conversational design practice? But all of your design should be conversational design because it should all focus on making the person, your customer, feel like everything's easy and that they can, oh, I'm making dinner. I can't use a screen. I want to talk or I'm out in public and I don't want to say anything aloud because I want to like have an interaction with my bank about my private finances. Oh, I just want to do something on a screen. Like the same person could want to interact with a business in all different ways, depending on what's going on around them. And so I think using the knowledge and the data we have about people to really make it so that interface is seamless and that they can switch in the same way that, you know, if you're working with somebody in a room, like you might be in an office with somebody and you are typing to them on Slack and then you say something aloud or you send them a GIF, right? People can handle that. We switch modes all the time. Right. But it's really hard for a computer to switch modes. You know, we have um, an Amazon Echo. It barely understands what I'm saying. Really? And there's no way. Yeah. I mean, it's good for, it can play music. It can set a timer. But if I want to, shop, it's really complicated. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to use my laptop to buy something from Amazon. Right. You also need and, the visual stuff when you shop yeah. for things, right? Mm-hmm. So I think 
what has to happen with design is we have to be holistic and think across all the different possible ways that somebody could switch while wanting to have one interaction, you know, because that's just how humans are. Humans can whisper or show a photo or do a dance and it can all be part of one conversation. And computers can't do that now. It's like, what? Oh, are you looking at the website? Oh, are you calling on the phone? We don't know that you're doing both those things because we have one team that's website. We have one team that's phone support, but that's not how humans are. I guess we will know that we are in the future when government services will be like, oh, hey, like they will recognize <laughs> you on the phone or in the website and you'll be like, what? Yeah. That's, like, that's the future. That's what the future right here. Exactly. Exactly. Like we hear that all these organizations have so much data, but if they know me so well, why do I see ads for things I've already bought follow me around the internet? If they're so smart, why don't they know I've already purchased what they're showing me the ad for? Yeah, they actually they're supposed to know it and just define it. It's supposed to be automatic. Yeah. Super interesting. Like 10 years ago, we were talking about responsiveness, creating uh-huh. like website for phones. And so we could do that. And the medium looked so ridiculous back then. It was like just shrinked version of the actual yeah. website. Mm-hmm. And now we have the privilege to speak about, okay, designing for context. So when are we in the bus? We have different contexts that when we're driving and Spotify are doing a great job with that because they have yeah. like bigger buttons when you're in connected to your car, for example rather than if you're walking in the park. So it would be amazing to see exactly what you said, like how it's going to even improve that in the future, like uh, the designing for context aspect. I think it's fascinating. And thank you for that answer. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So thank you so much, Erika Hall. In case our listeners want to see, want to reach you, what would be the best way to do that? Probably. I'm still on Twitter too much. <laughs> Mule Girl on Twitter or mm-hmm. muledesign.com. And I write on Medium. So those are probably the places. Cool. I'm going to add all of the links in the show notes. So it's probably already midnight on your end. So (laughs) have a great night. Thank you so much for staying today. So late uh, for this talk. I had a lot of fun and uh, I learned a lot myself and I'm sure the listeners learned a lot. We are going to learn a lot as well. So thank you. All right. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, totally worth staying up for. Uh, This is so nice. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was another episode of Writers in Tech. I hope you had fun and learned tons of new things. So currently, we are releasing two episodes of Writers in Tech every month. Now, our goal at the moment is to release a single episode every week. Like we have a weekly newsletter on UXWritingHub.com. With every newsletter that we send, we also want to send an episode of the podcast. We need your help to reach 100,000 listeners. So in order to do it, we need you to take a few actions. Okay, you can share this episode on social media like Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook group, Facebook page. Slack channel, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, anything. Okay, so just share it. You can also write a review and rate us on Apple Podcast because I heard it brings a lot of traction. Also, and this is my favorite one, you can send me personally feedback, yuval at uxwritinghub.com about our content, about the episode, how was it for you, what we can improve. And the content will improve based on your feedback. And then naturally more people will come. That's what UX is all about, right? 
that's it for now. Feel free to listen to another episode. Follow our weekly newsletter, uxreadinghub.com. And see you next time. Thank you.